Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Steven Spielberg is among the few directors who don't require any introduction. Redefining how Hollywood made movies and how they were received by audiences and the media, Spielberg's influence is long and complicated. Susan Lacey's documentary about his career, which premieres at the New York Film Festival and airs on HBO October 7th, uses interviews with actors, critics, and fellow movie brats to grapple with his films. To consider the documentary and the man himself, I was joined by... Molly Haskell, film critic and author. And... Michael Kresge, editorial director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Here's our conversation. So the Spielberg documentary that is showing at the New York Film Festival, part of the Spotlight on documentary, and will also be on HBO October 7th. It must be very weird for you, Molly, to see a documentary where they have to explain who Pauline Kael is for a variety of reasons. How much new information and insight is it, you know, giving about him, considering that, you know, you just wrote a well, for me, not, not none at all, but I think it's for a general audience, and it will be interesting to... I mean, they've got all these terrific people speaking, mm-hmm. interviews with interesting people. Um, for me, the most interesting thing was, say, watching him direct Drew Barrymore, because he was so wonderful with children, and to actually see that. And I think Tom Hanks and, and Daniel Day-Lewis have really interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much an authorized biography. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg wouldn't talk to me when I was doing my book. He wouldn't talk to Joe McBride either, who did the terrific full-dress biography earlier. For me, that was liberating. I think if I had met him, I would have felt compromised or indebted or something, and Mm -hmm. probably on his side. So to me, it was freeing. But it's the opposite here. I think he is, I I sort of see him as the author, basically, of every image and every every line of dialogue in the movie. Yeah, I had a similar uh, response. And I I was thinking of the De Palma doc from a couple of years ago, where I, I also got the feeling that hearing the director talk about his own career is maybe the last person I want to hear talk. I, I felt that more acutely with the De Palma doc, right. I think because he's such, such a divisive director. So mm-hmm. I kind of want to hear the critical take. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here, why I like your book so much more than I like the documentary. Um, obviously, there's so many things about the documentary that are enjoyable. I like the behind the scenes of the movie brats kind of frolicking around yeah. and yeah. filming yeah, each yeah. other. I like the scenes of him directing the kids. There's some really great information about you know the filming of jaws or the filming of et nothing that maybe i hadn't heard before but it's just kind of invigorating to see it come to life but yeah i generally felt like with steven spielberg at this point even a general audience knows a lot of these things i want the critical edge and even though i consider myself for the most part uh, a fan of steven spielberg's i what i got out of your book molly was this completely other take this other point of view. I want a different perspective at this point on Steven Spielberg. He's the kind of filmmaker who just changes as we change. Um, I I think it's it's interesting to talk about this more with you, Molly, because just 
the way different generations respond to Spielberg, I think, is completely fascinating. Well, I agree. And he's gone on for so long. I mean, he's had a, a, incredible longevity. But, it's, I mean, the 70s was was one audience, and, and then later than that, and even in the... I mean, I think the documentary gives the impression that everybody loved his early films, and then he stumbled, and then there was a reaction against him. And then people are always kind of defending him against charges that are actually never made in the film. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. But in fact, he, it was much more contested. I mean, this is the exciting thing. Movies change, in the, we change, younger people come in, and the critical consensus. So in the 70s, this was a, mo- a moment when this great period, I mean, you had some of it in your 1977 series, this wonderful period in the 70s when American directors were making sort of auteur films, when we were seeing all the European auteurs in this country, Mazursky, uh, Bogdanovich, uh, you know, the, oh, I'm thinking of the older ones, Altman, Woody Allen, and then suddenly in come these younger directors and everything changes. And the, everything about movie movie making, distribution, marketing, first it was Godfather and then Jaws and then Close Encounters and uh, um, Star Wars. And the blockbuster was born and everything was about money. And it, we sort of forget that now, but this was a, a real moment in time when newspapers had not reported box office figures every after every weekend. They started right. doing that, that the multiplex, the targeting, the repeater audience, and also young male, the young male audience. And that, I mean, that really was, uh, maybe something else would have come, but it was like Hollywood was making these interesting European-style films, and they weren't really comfortable with it. And then suddenly this came in, and, and Hollywood took off from there. Yeah, and I think a lot is made early on in the documentary of how young Steven Spielberg was, and the idea that, like, there's this part where Richard Dreyfus, I think very unfairly, is like, oh, he had to work on Night Gallery with Joan Crawford. You better believe he learned something. Ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. She hated him. And it's like... Well, yeah, I'm sure because Joan Crawford was this amazing actress who, you know, for a long time, she was very in control of her image and like the idea that she was working with like a 20 year old twerp. And she was also terrified because she hadn't done much television and her, I mean, she was an older woman and she, and her reputation was very, she was very fragile at that point. I think they actually did have a rapport. At least that was my understanding. Right, right. Yeah. He, he sort of won her over. Yeah. The story. He was terrified going in on the first day and then, well, who wouldn't be terrified? But then, yeah, Yeah. by the end of the shoot, I think it, it worked out really well and that, was what got him these other names and you know even more of the um the trust of Sid Scheinberg and right. it's so, so fun to think of him I mean, they talk about the movie brats as all one big happy family and I think they were as far as their love of film but in fact Spielberg was the one you know wearing a coat and tie and going to Universal mm-hmm. and making movies and they were all out on the beach smoking and still you know, <laughs> dreaming yeah yeah I know I love I love the idea of Spielberg as the or the reality of Spielberg yeah. as this nerdy outsider while everyone else was kind of <laughs> yeah. you know burning down the 70s he was like I'm working on my career. I don't really want to have too much sex or drugs, which is reflected in his films, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but no, one, one, one of the things that, even in your, your short preface which in, of the book, Molly, which I think is great, it sets up so many ideas that I had always wondered about and thought about earlier generations and their shifting responses to Spielberg over the years. It made me kind of not reevaluate, but kind of think of about my own assumptions about things. And um, it's very interesting to think of Spielberg in terms of a generation who was seeing the shifting as it was happening, whereas... Um, I when I grew up, it had happened. It had already happened. Yeah. So watching yeah. a Spielberg film as a child. So I was born in '79. Yeah. Um, and then so I grew up. The Spielberg of the '80s was 
the Spielberg. He was the he was cinema of the eighties. He That's was right. he was he became American mm-hmm. movies. You know the vernacular, the, mm-hmm. the vocabulary mm-hmm. was there. So it's like I was, um, and many people of my generation were learning the language of film by watching mm-hmm. E.T. or in my case, The Color Purple or Empire of the Sun or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. So we took those things for granted. So what I find fascinating is that we didn't start with the seed of doubt. Mm-hmm. We got it later. <laughs> Because uh-huh. as if, certainly for cinephiles who came of age with Spielberg, Spielberg is the kind of director who, because of all the you, you say there are blind spots. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting line where, like, you say his blind spots are your C spots yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> for for us, it when we became serious about film, that kind of came later. And then you have to kind of reject. You have to love Spielberg of our generation, and, and then you, you reject Steven Spielberg. You did go when through you, an estrangement. Well, that's an estrangement you know, period. I'd like to hear yeah. about that. And then, yeah. and then come back, back around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's happening now of cinephiles, not everybody, but cinephiles of our generation, because the craftsmanship yeah. of Hollywood filmmaking is kind of dead. And mm-hmm. so yes. people are appreciating him more and more as that, as one of the last holdouts. Of oh, that. The last practitioner of the Hollywood vernacular. And I think that's true. I think a lot of people have come around, but we were really hard on him because, because of this sort of commercial aspect and because of the childishness of what it, it seemed like. Also, this was a period when the women's movement was coming in and we were interested in women's roles and suddenly these these movie brats were fleeing women and it was as if they i think it was a kind of collective recoil from the hollywood romantic comedy of doris day and rock hudson the gloss that sort of high gloss and they weren't obligated now that they were sort of outside the studio system they weren't obligated to make movies for women to which women would go and that in 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 a sense that's been the case ever since yeah that's That's very well said. And mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a great part. I believe it's in the intro we were talking about how classical Hollywood has this reputation of being very buttoned up. But there is sort of like this simmering sexual tension in a lot of great Hollywood films. And that as generally does not exist in um, Spielberg yeah. movies at all. Yeah, I do. I do sort of take him to task a little bit, but not too much, because I think you can't have everything. And he right. knows that he knows yeah. he doesn't have that. He doesn't except for maybe occasionally always in other places. He doesn't really try for I mean, the romantic attraction of men and women is not his thing, but family is. And he does that so brilliantly and so beautifully. And in a way that's that was I mean, I, it, it was sort of it, it was revolutionary to me to think about that in the sense that he was doing he was he and Lucas were taking science fiction to another level for for better or worse mm-hmm. um to a high, you know to a movie level filmmaking but never had science fiction i mean the whole idea of science fiction is sort of had been escape escape from sex escape from women escape from mm-hmm. family and he brought family into this genre in this incredible way and that i think was everything that he's done looks very bold in retrospect we, we, we sort of accept it. Like you say, you come in and this is, this is the, the, the sort of standard. But at the time, they were very risky, risky enterprises. Mm. Yeah. And he, it, his career has gone through so many changes, more changes than most of the other movie brats of that generation. He's, had, he's, he, you know, he's become very interested in a certain kind of American history mm. and telling a certain kind of story. But he's, you know, he, it's almost like his career... There's, there's like a form of penance to part of it, right? And, he, and I, I always feel like the transition from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom directly to the color purple is mm. some crazy yeah. form of penance yeah. because Temple of Doom is one of the most famously racist films that Hollywood ever put out. <laughs> and then, you know, he's, then he felt like maybe he was doing his part with the color purple, a film yeah. that I like a lot, but it was controversial as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to talk about him in terms of family because that's, that's usually what, what a lot of people talk about. And he is, he's been very brilliant with that but it really is at 
the sacrifice of strong female characters, which yeah. is funny because like a family, everybody, <laughs> including the mother characters, the daughter characters, the sister characters, they should be part of that unit. But yeah. it's it usually he's focusing on the male characters. Absolutely. He's had very some a couple strong female characters here and there, well, but the way that they're utilized is not the same or dispatched I'd say it's not the same as the men I mean the color purple is obviously the this is the big exception that's the huge exception and like I have to say it's such a shame that he never felt sort of the desire to bring his amazing technical skills compassion you know obviously working with actors so well to another story like that because you really feel he worked so beautifully with those two women in that film yeah it's incredible and it's like why can't just just do it one more time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know I feel the same way but what's really fascinating was this this controversy that blew up with Elizabeth Banks over the past year this was very revealing but it was but but the response was very revealing did you hear about this so Elizabeth Banks made a speech recently talking about the Darth of Good Roles for Women in Hollywood and she said most filmmakers who work in Hollywood don't write any good roles for women even Steven Spielberg and she Mm -hmm. said Steven Spielberg's never had a film with a woman in a a main role she said this at a a very Mm -hmm. public speech Mm -hmm. it's a very valid point and it's just about true Almost true. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is the people who were angry with her were, were african-american women. yeah so they she actually had to issue an apology statement it became a big controversy where african-american women on twitter were saying well i guess if the woman isn't white you, yeah. she doesn't count because the color pur- <laughs> because the color purple what this made me realize something that i have uh, sort of suspected for a while because of some friends of mine is that the color purple is actually a major major touchstone film for african-american women mm-hmm. in the u.s and so when you just kind of casually dismiss it and a lot of white critics who took a lot of exception to the film I mean, a lot of black critics did as well mm. um, but a lot of white critics did especially and it sort of doesn't give the people who appreciate that film on that level of voice and um, the color purple is pretty iconic for a large segment of the population i mean it it was whippy goldberg's first feature film Mm -hmm. period not just like you know it was introducing whippy goldberg she's incredible she's incredible in it oprah is incredible in it danny glover is incredible it's like yeah these are sizable african-american actors and again you know much is made of the fact that george lucas couldn't get red tails made However, I would say, having come up with a story for Temple of Dune, maybe people were a little hesitant to give that guy another <laughs> shot at doing something related to uh, not white people. But anyway, it was like an incredible launching pad for those actors. And it's like, it's hard to think of someone else who could have had that level of budget, that level of time to sort of spend on this well, story. Well, there again, it was embroiled in the controversies of the time where yeah. white directors, well, they still have a little bit of that, it's the appropriation issue. White mm-hmm. directors weren't supposed to make movies about blacks, why couldn't it be about blacks? So that it was like Gone with the Wind, people were, were, were protesting before he even started making it. Mm-hmm. And then there was this thing about why had, he hadn't gone far enough in the sex scene. I think that scene is a beautiful scene between mm-hmm. the two women. And I think he goes just far enough. He sort of semi apologizes for that in the documentary I guess they had to have some little in fact that, that, that I didn't find a single negative or skeptical word in the whole documentary except for David Edelstein on the color purple oh which I, was yeah. which was one of my biggest problems I actually want more critique in that documentary mm-hmm. but that bothered me a lot the yeah. section on the color purple ends with the horriest ideas about the color purple voiced by of all people 
Oh, a white male critic, David yeah. Edelstein. Who's yeah. very yeah. thirsty. They should yeah. have had Armand <laughs> White. Armand White gave a great review to that film. Yes, Armand yes. White's a huge fan of that. Yeah. But they had Oprah being interviewed. I just don't know why that section of the film ended yeah. on David Edelstein, right. whose point is the the one that is I, this drives me insane at this point, because it's been said so often, which is that it's a Disney-fied version of Alice Walker's novel, mm. all that, all that, mm. that it's overly pretty, overly uh, glossy. I actually, I think that that's obviously a valid criticism. My interpretation has always been that Spielberg using the vernacular of classical Hollywood cinema in the John Ford tradition and yeah. using it for, for or even for Song of the about, South, you know, there's a little bit of that in it, even. and then yeah. turning it around and turning it around, it yeah, about all black characters mm. is actually kind of subversive. Mm. It yeah. looks and like also, a and, and now, film. Th- these were not poor. There were people complain they're not they're not poor enough. Well, they weren't poor. These were actually, you know, moderately risen blacks in terms yeah. of uh, what the, most blacks at the time right. yeah. had land. Yeah, yeah. I briefly mentioned this when I was talking about a film that I had seen recently that I liked, Friday, where it's like, that's a very candy-colored vision of South Central LA. And it, again, the way people talk about inner cities, it's like, oh, they're hellholes, they're war zones, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, no, people live there and families live there and people, yeah. they're not... They don't people, feel themselves as downtrodden. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. suffering yeah. all no, the time. No, it's no. not like people are walking with a... tears in their yeah. face, strewn across <laughs> their faces on this totally like gray, you know, it's, 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 a, it's ridiculous. So yeah. yeah, I mean, like horrible things can happen in beautiful places and vice versa. So maybe we can switch now now that we've recouped uh the wonderful film color purple um we can talk about when a director talks about his own films there's this tendency to be like well it was a financial failure and therefore the film was a failure mm. and that's kind of a really boring way to that's probably the most boring way to approach uh, any career so we're going to talk about major and minor spielberg works now so we can do go in chronological order so i'll start and i'll start talking about jaws and Jaws was a film that I actually had never seen before I started preparing for this podcast. Which is insane, by the way. Well, how did you manage to avoid yes. it? I just avoided it. I just avoided you it. You sort of did You resisted it for some reason. Yeah, because yeah. obviously, you know, you you when you read a film history, it's like, this is a film that started blockbusters. Yeah. This was the first one, and this changed everything. And again, you know, growing up when Spielberg was the thing, right? He was the pinnacle of this thing. And I felt, you know, growing up, I didn't feel included let's say mm. in the spiel in the types of films Phenomenon. that spielberg would make mm-hmm. and so i sort of was like i have always had this sort of resistant relationship to him and watching jaws i have to say you know there's no straight line between this and like transformers movies or marvel movies like it's actually again this is a very beautifully made very suspenseful film and watching it i was sort of surprised that it's way more about the horror of like small town america than it is about the shark because it's like who is more dangerous this animal that's just going on its instincts or these people who are like well i want my hotel to make money Mm. (laughs) like Mm. don't don't make me close the beach on uh july 4th there is like this definite critique in the film and in the filmmaking that is wonderful and just even the way the mayor dresses where he's like constantly power clashing and he's very tacky (laughs) um i i love that and it's like i was like i wouldn't i wouldn't again i wouldn't expect that in a in a spielberg film and and um i also just love i mean it's now it's a cliche like a lot of the things that it does you know from the from the music which i think is a little too much Mm. um from the music to you know the fact that it's like an old sea salt and a rich kid scientist and a cop who's afraid of water who lives on an island going out together and you know like the unlikeliest of friends uniting against a common enemy that they 
kind of can't understand because nobody really understands it. And that's like fascinating. And so I accept Jaws. <laughs> Long story short, I accept it. Uh, well, I think one of the great things is with Spielberg, he never belabors anything. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the movies of the time, you would have overplayed the part of the townspeople, the bigots, right. and the and all they care about is the commercial interests. He makes the point beautifully, but he doesn't belabor it. He's not constantly paranoid about mm-hmm. that. As I looked at his films again, I came to really appreciate it. This is pretty obvious, but still, it's the humor. Yeah. I mean, he's funny about those three guys. I mean, oh, it yeah. is... He's they, they, he sort of knows that they're stereotypes and they're different forms of masculinity and mm-hmm. he's sort of interrogating them, but he's playing with it at the same time. Yeah. yeah there are just so many different ways of looking at Jaws. I mean, mm. do you talk about it in terms of its technical prowess, which of course was, Spielberg says all the time in, in the documentary especially, was an accident because they right. couldn't get the shark to work and all that. Right. I mean, you know, the, Hollywood's greatest example of happy accidents, right? Or do you look at it in terms of the themes, which are just so bountiful, mm-hmm. right? It's Yes, it's totally about American development and commercial interests, and it's totally about, it's about family and yeah. what Well, he stripped out. Well, there was a love affair, which he left out, which he was wise to do, I think. It was just mm-hmm. would have been one thing too many. But yes, and also, again, at the time, everybody, the people that didn't like it, and I was one and others too, because we were all very leery of this, thought it was just a mechanical. It was, and, he, and he said that in interviews at the time. It was just a mechanical thrill. I just wanted to make people jump, and he did. I mean, people were absolutely terrified. Now, I mean, after in, in, in light of the sort of superhero franchises and action movies we've had, it looks like a humanist masterpiece. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, so, yeah. It's a movie that I grew up watching on videotape, and I hadn't seen in a theater with an audience until two years ago when they showed it at BAM and when they had like the larger, the mm. big BAM Harvey that they opened where they mm. had the really large screen. So, and it was sold out and it was, I think it was July 4th. <laughs> that was a completely different experience, not just because of the way it plays on the audience, you know, like a violin, like Hitchcock said, it's just so perfectly done, all the suspense sequences, but also just the uh, scope of it, just the visual scope of it, being mm. out there on the water on the ocean like that um it was pretty overwhelming i actually had it felt like more of an existential threat than than a specific movie about a mechanical shark Uh, yeah absolutely i think i think that's really true it's just the the deepest kind of cosmic peril that you're in yeah Yeah. well it's interesting i i hadn't realized this but you know there were three movies john borman's hope and glory Mm -hmm. um louis miles or les enfants and steven spielberg's empire of the sun that were made the same year all in 1987 all World War II is seen through the eyes of a young boy. Of course, Borman and Mal were looking back on their own childhoods, and even though there are similarities there of the excitement of war for children, they're still seen through a lens of sort of security, of the mm-hmm. a secure family, whereas the Spielberg, and he, of course, was not old enough to have lived through this or only had his father's recollections of it. It's the J.G. Bell. You know, first of all, people are always talking about Spielberg as sentimental and child-oriented. But two of the, I think, two of the harshest writers of the 20th century, two of the bleakest, are J.G. Ballard mm-hmm. and Philip K. Dick, right. and he uses both of those. And the Ballad is a semi-autobiographical story of when he was a child in the English settlement in Hong Kong and being invaded by the Japanese. And Christian Bale gives the most extraordinary performance as the child. And it, it wasn't successful. And I think, uh, or critically or commercially, when it came, I think since then it has is, it is gained admirers. But it is a view of a child not only loving war, but identifying with the enemy. Yeah. He prefers the Japanese. You know, he loves this Japanese pilots for the, the planes, the stoicism, wanting the war. Mm-hmm. And that continues through it. It is really... Um, 
one of the darkest portraits and yet exhilarating at the same time of a child's enchantment with women. You have that in Hope and Glory. They say, yeah, 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 come on, Hitler, bomb. You know, they just want, this is what, the way children, and we sort of don't want to remember that or realize that yeah. because it suggests that there's something deeply visceral about the desire for war and, and combat. But in any case, um, of course, he becomes, he leaves the settlement. I just think the whole, everything about it, the beginning, that gliding of of the Rolls Royce through the settlement and, and, and these the beggar on the street and the strains of that hymn, the Welsh, the boys' choir is singing, and this little boy in this car, and suddenly his he's in jeopardy. I mean, usually it's sort of the boy is in control and he's in jeopardy. Anyway, I, I just to me, from beginning to end, it's, it's just uh, a masterpiece. Yeah, I think it's an extraordinary film. It's a film that gets better on every viewing. I identified with that character as a child, but now that I'm older, I find him to be such a strange, wonderfully off-putting character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love that about him. And um, one thing we haven't really mentioned in all of this is, you know, why Spielberg is... is considered so great which is that and i what i think it ultimately is is that he is so good at distilling the ideas that he's trying to get across down into single images he's just there's never been anyone like him in american cinema who can do that just the power of a single image and sometimes you can tell if he's overreaching it doesn't work but when it works it's Mm. there's nothing like an empire of the sun has a handful of those Mm. for me and the thing that i can never get out of my head and even when i think of it i mean i get chills just thinking of it is towards the end of the film because i do think that the last 20 minutes is probably even the greatest part of the film after they've evacuated the camp and they're trudging across that landscape um, and they come across that um, field the football stadium with all the with all of the discarded discarded, antiques and pieces of civilization the scene where he he sees the 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 atom bomb in the distance he doesn't the film doesn't tell you what it is at that point he doesn't know what it is but he thinks it's the spirit of this woman going up to heaven. Miranda, Miranda Richardson's Richardson. character. Yeah. And of course, what it is, is an entire yeah. race of people being eradicated. It's very, very powerful. And again, Empire of the Sun just has these images. of mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's power. interesting. In the, in the documentary, the only other negative thing was um, Tom Stoppard, who did the screenplay for Empire of the Sun. And they show a little bit of that scene, and he says something about Spielberg being sentimental. Now, I think there are moments of sentimentality in Spielberg. I think very often he'll just hold a scene too long. He'll milk an emotion, the goodbye in in E.T. and and certain things like that. But in this, I don't see that in this film at all. And there's something so, I don't think, it's exactly what you say about the distillation, that he manages to show the beauty of this. Again, it's like the beauty of war and the horror of it simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And based on something you just said about him sometimes holding things too long, mm-hmm. he does something in Empire of the Sun that is so rare for him, which is an almost subliminal image, mm-hmm. which is when he's trying to resuscitate the life of the young Japanese boy that yeah. has been killed and mm-hmm. he can't. And as he's trying to do CBR in him, Christian Bell keeps moving out of the frame and the sun keeps flashing right into the camera. And then there's a quick frame of himself mm-hmm on the ground yeah. in his schoolboy uniform right, right. where he's actually doing CPR on his own self uh-huh. and oh. it's gone. It's this flash. Wow. I've never seen anything like that. I have to watch it again because I don't remember that. Spielberg. Yeah. Oh, Incredible. it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, that film just reverberates on so many different levels and, the, and when he finally is reconciled with the parents and I mean, it's every... I was just bowled over. Andrew Saris and I saw it together, and we both were bowled over. But a lot of people I know came to it after that. They didn't like it at first. But I think we were both, by that ending where 
he doesn't first he doesn't even recognize his parents and then he's in their arms you know all he's wanted all this time is his family and now he finally has them and he's gone beyond them in some way like we all do but in this case exacerbated by the whole experience of war and it also I thought well this is what it would be like when ET gets home because he's had this huge experience and he's going to get home and he's not going to recognize his parents I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that okay. the, I didn't say it I didn't say it the saddest interpretation of ET's ending no My choice for a major film is one that at one point was considered minor, but it's AI, artificial intelligence, which was, right, Molly just put her hand on her Yeah, immediately (laughs) Um, love that one too. I think of Empire of the Sun and AI kind of in the same breath because they're slightly more brutal depictions of childhood. AI, of course, is famously the film that originated from Stanley Kubrick. And people were mistaken in their criticism of it when it came out and thinking that the sentimental parts were Spielberg and the dark parts were Kubrick. It was the entire plot was sketched up by Kubrick ahead of time. It was all his idea. And Kubrick had actually wanted Spielberg to be the one to make it. They had years and years of conversations. Kubrick didn't think for years that special effects were advanced enough Mm -hmm. until he saw Jurassic Park with its very photorealistic dinosaurs. And he thought, okay, maybe we can actually make this movie. Then Spielberg did ultimately use an actor, Haley Joel Osment, instead of instead of a CGI character to play the robot child. So it was a very divisive film. It's a very... Well, one interesting sideline mm-hmm. there is yes. that Kubrick realized he couldn't do it because a child being a robot would have to stay the same all the way right. through the film. And he took so long to make movies that the child would be in school, in high school by the time. Right. <laughs> it would have been That's very true. No robot. Yeah, anyway, sorry to interrupt. Right, it would have been an Eyes Wide Shut-like level yeah. of shooting. It would have been years have gone by. But when it's Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, they don't age so much. Yeah, that's right. A child. They got a little, little help, you know. Right, yeah. this is true. Um, so it was, yeah, f- famously AI was, I-, I wouldn't say outright rejected. It's a lot of critics loved it. I remember Andrew Sarris loving it he when did, it came out. Yeah. I loved it so much that I saw it six times in the theater when it came out and it became this cause for me where I was forcing everyone to watch it. And I remember saying to people, okay, well, if, even if you have problems with the plot where it goes, because it's one of those films that... It seems like it would have seven different endings. And the first time you see it, you that's that's antagonistic to an audience member, right? I just, you know, end where I think you're going yes, to end. Yes, yes. Because people bring expectations into a movie. But when you see it a second time, and I'm every single person I know who saw it a second time liked it more the second time. Is that time. right? Yeah. Because you know the shape, the scope and shape of it. It's about that last 20 minutes. Without the last 20 minutes, it doesn't even have a mm-hmm. point. So mm-hmm. you have to get there. But uh, AI is a film that I, I just, on, a, on like a shot for shot level, it, it displays so much mastery of the form that I don't, I don't think there's much that's even comparable to it. And we talk about brief images and things being um, sort of condensed into one. There is a shot of Jude Law's character in extreme close-up as he witnesses the suicide of the, the robot child. And it's so close, and it's reflected in the, mm. the front of the amphibicopter thing that he's flying. Um, and as you see the child fall, it's reflected as a teardrop going down the face yeah. of the side of Jude Law's face. And Jude Law's also, he's a, he's a sex robot in the film. So he also has no human emotions. So it's about these robots who are slowly finding their emotions yeah. and trying to find out who they are. So this, this, this image, which is just so powerful unto itself, is also saying that these, these robots cannot cry. Mm. So the film is creating these mm. instances where we can see 
some version of, of emotion and tears. And it's just, it's the kind of movie I wouldn't even know where to begin talking about. I, I find it so powerful and so over emotion, emotionally wrenching. Mm. The abandonment scene in the forest mm. is, is, um, a mother rejecting her child. It's just, un- and, and, but you can understand why I have to both right. wants him and recoils from him. And she's yeah. actually one of the most interesting female characters. In, she in, is. Francis is kind of wonderful in, in this. Films. Yeah. Because again, yes, you understand, yeah. from the point of view of the mother she's been given this replacement child for her real and child and she wants to love it and she can yeah and she can yeah. the the programming scene where the mm. child is imprinted on the mother these are profoundly primal things mm. that are going on in ai and i find it to be a very disturbing experience but also kind of a cathartic one so well it's also it. because spielberg in a way is going over to the other side a little bit i mean he's always on both sides the humanist and the and the and the technological and after um, Jurassic Park and Dennis Murren's discovery of C- basically how to do the dinosaurs and CGI, there's more and more CGI coming into movies, more and more uh, virtual reality. So I think he resisted science because his father was this engineering brain and he, he wasn't good in school. So he resisted the academic. And now suddenly he, of course, he got into video games very early on. But with um, Jurassic Park, he really he's taking courses in it and he's understanding all the scientific aspects so much. And Kubrick, of course, was more on the side of robots than on, on that of humans. So I think you, you, one of the eerie and unsettling things about it is you really, your sympathy is really divided and you're seeing Siri and all of these devices that we have that are humanoid coming up. And I think one of the great scenes is, of course, the one in the swimming pool where he's drowning. And I think what Spielberg does is he gets, when Freud talks about the um, uncanny, it's the familiar becoming strange or the strange becoming familiar where you're in between these Mm -hmm. two states. And he gets that here where he's not quite human and not quite robot. And it's like the precogs in Minority Report. Mm -hmm. Nobody can do that like he can. Well, also, you can see the the legacy of Schindler's List all over AI because this is a movie that AI is ultimately about intolerance. And he uses the, the way that, human civilization treats the the robots the mechas the orgas versus mechas it becomes this sort of like racial coding mm-hmm. so there's that that scene by the pool which is one of the reasons it's so powerful is because before he's kind of discarded like a toy into the pool the other boys are um racially profiling him yeah they are telling him who who has the power the, the, there's one boy who says i'm orga you're mecca yeah. orga mecca and he points points back and right. forth so he knows who's boss yeah he knows yeah. So it's very it's very bullet, racially yeah. coded and this happens throughout the film of course as it gets worse and worse he has the, the flesh fair scene which is this mm. horrific holocaust mm-hmm. sequence um, and then yeah um, he's subhuman to the majority yeah so it's so it's actually this great empathizing with a marginalized figure actually right the, the ro- and of course the brilliant irony because bringing it back to technology is that it's these non-people who, who will actually inherit triumph. the earth yeah um, it's very mm. powerful we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with filmstruck filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the criterion collection Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. 
Now we're going to talk about the minor leagues of Spielberg now that we've gone through some of the majors. I uh, I feel compelled to talk about this one because the doc treats it like a uh, giant failure and it kind of is. It's 1941. Spielberg talks about it like he's like, oh, I was just like choking on my own hubris and I made this crazy movie because I thought I was funny and it's not funny. And 1941 is, first of all, 1941 is when Empire of the Sun begins. And um, it's also about a very complicated people's complicated relationship to war actually it's um this dark comedy set in hollywood california where this japanese sub is approaching trying to get on the mainland which is sort of based on rumors that were going around at the time and basically uh people go the americans go nuts and start just attacking each other um because you know that is something throughout the history of america that has happened where there's an attack from the outside and then American civil liberties are taken away. And you can see that after Pearl Harbor. You can see that um, after 9-11. And this this film sort of like gets into that in a really crazy way. I mean, there, there are parts that are just like absolutely ridiculous. Um, John Belushi plays this uh, <laughs> this like insane fighter pilot who's like tracking the Japs, right? And he's going around all these places and he just goes to a gas station to fill up his plane, but he leaves the plane on and then the plane starts flying away without him. So again, it's like it's like doing this like very sort of complicated critique of American policy, but then it, it kind of feels like the Southland Tales of its time because it had a bunch of people from SNL in it. It has uh, Christopher Lee as a Nazi, only speaking German on a Japanese sub. It has Slim Pickens as Slim Pickens because he always played Slim Pickens, right? Mm-hmm. And he sort of does this ref, like this weird reference to the reading off the supplies scene from Doctor Strangelove when they're going through his pockets. And there's the movie starts with a Jaws parody where a naked woman gets put up on this Japanese submarine, and John Candy is in it. Yeah, just a lot of just like a lot of people sort of all mixed together, and it's it has a very bizarre tone. But then it also shows, you know, there are a bunch of guys who just join the military to get laid because they don't actually care. <laughs> That's all they actually care about. It's like a dark comedy, but there are parts of it that are totally stupid. And I can see how that would be off-putting to a lot of people or people would be sort of partially satisfied by it. Well, also, as it came at that point where all of these for lack of a better term, again, movie brats, the people yeah. that the directors of that generation were biting off more they could chew. They were right. using gigantic budgets and yeah. nothing pisses Hollywood and, or on cocaine at the time off. too. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think this whole movie was sm- smoke. <laughs> uh, but nothing pisses Hollywood off more than, you know, a lot of money thrown out the window. So yeah. it was a flop and it was a lot of stuff this, being destroyed. Yeah. Like this, the sets on this are insane because there's this big jitterbug contest in the middle of the film and it goes yeah. on for it must have taken like 10 days to shoot this that thing because there's dancers yeah, there's a huge fight sequence yes. there's like neon signs everywhere and it's like this must have been so expensive he you know but he talks in the documentary also about how it was such a great learning experience because he after that he always promised to stay under budget Jason. <laughs> yes right yeah. and it's interesting to look at the opening of the temple of doom in comparison to 1941 because he loves those sorts of weird over-the-top musical dancing caper yeah. contraptions yeah. but he he condenses it into you know three minutes at the beginning yeah. of temple yeah. of doom whereas he's just so excessive and, in 1941 but the excess of 1941 is the point and it's a house of pop and goofball yeah craziness mm-hmm. and it could have almost worked but not quite somehow you know? yeah 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 you I want mean, it you want it to get there yeah 
Yeah, it's never really funny, and the the the, the comic episodes are not directed. The, you know, the rhythm of them is off, or, the, or something. So, it's everything about it is just off. But yet, it's sort of fascinating for that reason. And also, a lot of it, I think, is he wants to do a war film, and he still has this sort of the sense of guilt that his generation has about not having fought in the war, their parents mm-hmm. having fought this war that they didn't, and Hollywood sort of making war films, and have, and they don't know anything about it. So, I think that. Yeah. It sort of infuses this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie that I've always wanted to like more, mm. um, but you can't. mostly because everyone else hates it, so I want to like it. I but know, also, exactly, you want to be contrarian, yeah. But you <laughs> no, yeah, I want, I want to recoup it. <laughs> no. I want to, yeah. but I actually, and also because in concept, I think it's great. I think it's an amazing idea for. Oh a movie. yeah, it's it a is. great idea. Yeah, um, and to show that level of chaos on our side mm-hmm. about in a war film the hysteria yeah, yeah the hysteria yeah. it's it's a fascinating film it's it just, is. just you know it just doesn't quite mm. come together but i will watch it just to see the general destruction of it yeah mm. do you want to do you want to talk about your minor movie oh yeah um catch me if you can i'm not, I'm not sure how the, if that qualifies as minor i think minor and it was not particularly well received at the time catch me if you can is the based on the true story of Frank Abagnale who was a, a forger and an imposter mm-hmm. and wrote his own story and Leonardo DiCaprio plays him. Christopher Walken is the father. Natalie By the mother. Tom Hanks, the FBI guy. And it was made very quickly. And mm-hmm. it's got these fabulous sets of New York, feeling for New York in the 70s. And DiCaprio apparently had a cold and was miserable, which also helps. Um, it's, it's, it's funny and melancholy at the same time. Right from the beginning, it's characteristic of Spielberg anyway, but... I sort of feel more in the later movies it's the sense of running, running, running and you get it in Minority Report you can't stop, you can't stop running. He said it's his most personal film because you know throughout his childhood his parents there was this tremendous tension between the parents but they stayed together, stayed together finally they broke up he had to go with the father with whom he didn't get along so it's Spielberg's being cast out of the family mm-hmm. and Leonardo DiCaprio is cast out of the family the parents break up there's all sorts of sort of side autobiographical themes there, but we'll get into that. But the father disappears in the, in the actual memoir. Spielberg keeps him in, so Walken, Christopher Walken comes up again and again. And, and they're very funny, sad, moving scenes about the attempt of this kid to get his parents back together and his own, how he's traumatized and how that feeds into him. And he's just so seductive. He becomes a pilot and he flies pen and planes, or he seems to. And he goes through these various impersonations. And finally, he gets back, spoiler alert, um, (laughs) Hanks catches him. And it's this kind of primal scene where he finally gets back to Long Island where his mother is and looks through the window. And there is his his replacement family there's a there's a new family there and so the family is broken forever but to me this is just a, such a powerful theme in Spielberg of wanting to reunite wanting to bring the family back together the child cast out and i think the the tone here is just masterfully sustained throughout with this sort of thread of melancholy and the Tom Hanks character is very good as this plotting FBI guy and the two two men are sort of chained together and then it's like the good father and the bad father in Spielberg which is another kind of running theme but it's just a very graceful and I think poignant film. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I enjoy that film a lot too and I, I always think of it as part of this unspoken trilogy of the early aughts or from 2001 to 2002 he made three films really fast AI Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can all very powerful films about 
ultimately, well, there are about many things, but ultimately the impossibility of the family getting back together yeah. is such a dark period of films for him. Um, and I, 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 I always found it very, like you say, melancholy, even though it has this light caper tone, yeah. it's actually a very sad uh, yeah. movie. Yeah. Cause there's, there are these amazing sequences where he's sort of like dashing around and there are these CGI sort of like overlays of him and, you know, dashing through the airport and, and it's, this it, uniform. I mean, it's oh, all yes. about looking good. And this was, yes. this was a big thing in the seventies. You could come from anywhere. You could come from the outer boroughs. As long as you dressed right, mm -hmm. you could pass for a New Yorker or pass for a cosmopolite. And impersonation is a theme there. And I think it's also, there's a kind of Spielbergian angst there of, am I too successful? And, you know, am I going to be found out? Yeah. You know, I don't deserve all the success. So I think a lot is going on in his private life at this time so that he's becoming less trusting and outgoing and he's sort of withdrawn. There's a stalker and all sorts of strange things going on. I also think it's the only someone correct me if I'm wrong, the only film he made where there's the actual scene of the child seeing the parents divorce. Yeah. Which makes yeah. it maybe the most achingly personal. That's right. The and all the others divorce, is already had the breakup has happened, the separation has already occurred. Yeah. yeah it's really and and trying to get it strong. back together. Yeah. Well, my minor Spielberg is definitely a minor Spielberg. It's a movie that still has yet to be recouped or appreciated by anybody. <laughs> but I absolutely love it, which is always. I don't even think is mentioned in the documentary. No. Even, I don't even... Like, they, they show a shot of Hook, but they don't even show a no, second of right, all. Right. Hook, which is my actual least favorite. I really, really dislike the movie. Hook and The Terminal, for anyone who cares, are my two least favorites. I'm, I'm very interested Spielberg to know. <laughs> um, but I think Always is just a splendid film. I love what you wrote about it, Molly. You're not a particularly huge fan of it. And I really love what you wrote because it clarified for me, some of the reasons why people wouldn't like it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because this is the only film he made that tries to be almost like a romantic comedy. Yeah. And you make the really great case that you can't do a romantic comedy with no sex or, <laughs> or sexiness or any inference of sex. That's and, right. It has and to be the, inference. It doesn't have to be outright, but yeah. And the main Arousal couple... So it's a, the main couple is Holly Hunter and Richard Dreyfuss, and they have a more of a sibling kind of relationship than a love relationship, well, even though the whole film is based dress. on that. He gives her the dress, the sexy dress, and then and then the morning after she's like, "You need to commit to me." Well, she says she says girl clothes because she's a tomboy. I she's know. one of the guys, and <laughs> you you write about this in your in in the book, Molly. You compared it to the Karen Allen scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. where she's given mm -hmm. the dress, and suddenly this tomboy takes on this quasi feminine, quasi sexual the makeover, um, yeah, and it doesn't really work, right? Yeah. And that's part of the point. But that's just, it's very telling about Spielberg and how he deals with women and how he deals with sex. That all said, I just love Holly Hunter mm. so much as a performer that the, it just gets around all those issues for me. And when the film later on becomes about her relationship with someone else, because it's, it's about Richard Dreyfuss's a ghost kind of letting hovering, her go. Yeah. Let, hovering and letting hovering, her go. Yeah. Um, when it becomes that, I, I think there is a little more of an erotic charge almost when he's when he's watching as opposed to taking right. part, which is interesting mm -hmm. and that just, is interesting yeah. a little uh, just and just a little quick background is that it's a remake of one of his favorite films a guy named joe which was a victor fleming film from 1943 with spencer tracy and irene dunn yum yum yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah probably a more exciting duo but, but i really do sexy in, in like the conventional, conventional way mm -hmm. either but there's just tremendous there's a tr more erotic charge but anyway go yeah. ahead right. but, but we but can all agree richard dreyfus is like one of the angriest people to yeah. have ever lived <laughs> so it's just like weird to see me like wow sweetie you know like this weird like richard dreyfusy way but i think that they continue. have really good chemistry they they, they made another film a couple years later which was a, a, um not a, a terrible 
mediocre Lassa Hallstrom film called Once Around, which was, takes place in Boston. And Jenna Rollins and Danny Aiello play the parents. And it's actually a pretty <laughs> so interesting movie. But they are the couple again. They, mm. I think that they have a really great chemistry. It's not sexual at all no, in, in either of no. these films. No. But they have a rapport. A rapport, and absolutely. I and I enjoyed I enjoyed that. But and the, the f- sense of yearning, I, I do I do give it that. I think Spielberg really understands loss and yearning. Mm-hmm. So that part of the relationship, absolutely full throttle, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just just a, a little shout out to what should be obvious at this point, but the visual construction of that film is quite beautiful. He he changed it from a movie about World War II fighter pilots to a movie about volunteer forest. Firemen, which, which is a very is re- strange change. It is. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, the heroism is gone. Yeah. That's not true. Well, no. That, I well, it is. I mean, it's traditional. Not traditional. Boy, it's not our boys in uniform, right, you know. Right. I mean, I, I was going to make the point that actually it's not. Sorry. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. okay. So as I say, it's We're like. interrupting you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the tradi- traditional forms of movie heroism are gone from that film. What is replaced with is something that's a little more. I don't again like Jaws existential it's something mm. and it's and it's about nature and it's about the elements and I actually found it very moving and powerful I think it's about fire and water and mm. and stars and there's these shots of the plane Beautiful. flying yes. through this yeah. just vast ocean of stars that I find to be incredibly moving it came out one year before Ghost and it's kind of the mm. same plot mm-hmm. as Ghost and I like it a lot more than yeah. Ghost yeah. even though Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost is really fantastic so I don't know I feel like it's this completely underappreciated film I want to see it in a theater and I Mm. So I saw it in theater when it came mm-hmm. out, but I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that's terrific, because I was a little 10-year-old who loved everything. Yeah. But then um, I watched it again on a 35-millimeter print this summer at Museum of the Moving Image. Mm. Um, had the worst turnout of any of the Spielberg <laughs> films that they showed, yeah. of course. But the people who were there oh. stayed in their seats to the last credit roll. People were yeah. kind of enraptured by it. I think it probably has an under-the-radar cult I- following. I'm sure it would look better today. And I really recommend it okay. to people. Is that all you want to say about Always? I could talk about Always all day. Always. Well, I think one another interesting <laughs> thing is um, in the earlier version, it's Van Heflin is the lover that Irene Dunn comes to and that Spencer Tracy allows her to have. But in this one, I don't remember who the actor is, but he's not. He's kind of nobody. Oh, yeah. the, he's he's named Brad Johnson, not yeah. not Van Johnson. It's his Brad Johnson, <laughs> yeah. which is probably why he was hired. Van's I don't think he cousin. made a lot of movies. Yeah, he kind of looks like a slightly more handsome Tom Berenger. Oh, yeah. right. He's right, very right. handsome. He's very dull. Yeah. Um, well, even in the beginning, where she's like looking, he's looking over her, and I'm like. Oh my God, snooze button! Like it's not. It's but not. it's such an interesting contrast with Richard Dreyfuss. Totally. I love that. Well, you know who's in that? Is Margot Margo Hellenberger, the one that was Mark Hellenberger. Uh, yeah, she's she's an exciting. I wish I, I love wanted to see role. more of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Every time yeah. that character's on screen, I think yeah. maybe we should follow that yeah. character for a little while. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, I again, Holly Hunter is such a dynamic screen I presence agree. that I think she mm-hmm. gets around some of the Spielberg women problems just mm-hmm. by force of her will and her characterization. Well, she's such a quintessential embodiment of the Spielberg woman i mean she is tomboy she is more a sibling than a romantic uh, icon it's a beautiful film what can i say okay (laughs) give it a second chance dear listener please humor us um well we're unfortunately going to have to end it there but before we do it would be great if each of us uh said a film that we saw recently that we liked i saw i tanya which is, I was on the verge of tears the entire time I was watching I, Tanya. I'm not naturally a very nostalgic person, but also I'm relatively young. Um, so there hasn't been anything that's really probed my childhood. Like I 
Tanya did. Um, I grew up in a pro-Harding, anti-Kerrigan household. And we did not like Nancy Kerrigan at all. You know, because I think the film, there are moments of it that are definitely, it, sh- it shows this side of America that is very rarely shown. There are definitely parts of it that are sort of like poking, loving, fun at certain characters but I think those characters are meant to be the villains and because they are the ones who ultimately because they're so stupid they end up screwing over this woman who is fighting against the establishment an abused woman her whole life and it's just um, Margot Robbie does a wonderful job as Tonya Harding I think it was weirdly moving to me not weirdly it was just moving and um, I urge everyone to see it because it it begins with a statement that says this is all based on true non-ironic testimony from the people involved so and and i think there are moments of actually great filmmaking in it as a you know and 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 not sort of playing with the hysteria the way that the oj series did the myrowitz stories Mm -hmm. the noah baumbach and i loved i think it's a a sort of a brilliant screenplay i have a little reservation about this tussle that the two guys get two brothers get into um, Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller, because they've done it with words and with uh, gestures earlier. It's just sort of redundant. But I, and I loved in his, in his uh, press conference, he talked about uh, to the models that he thought about were Lubitsch and Ophuls, and I thought Ophuls. And yet, <laughs> there's something, and it made me it made me go back to Ophuls and start rethinking Ophuls. But the whole idea of screwball comedy somehow in this family story, and how how stylized it is. He says it's not just behavioral documentary. It's very much crafted, stylized, timed, choreographed. Um, the other was Heroes for Sale, which I saw at Film Forum, which is this Warner's movie from 1933 that is probably the bleakest, with Richard Barthelmus, the bleakest movie I've ever seen. It's sort of from the war through the Depression. Um, it was part of, David Thompson was introducing, it's part of the Warner series, and it just, I, it was, I was just blown away by how dark and interesting it was. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I finally got to see the Claire Denis film, Let the Sunshine In, yeah. or if it's called Bright Sunshine In, or if it's called Un Beau Soleil Interieur. Yeah. But right now it's being called Let the Sun Shine In. And I had been very excited to see this. I'm a huge fan of hers. I was not disappointed. It's a kind of experience I don't want to give too much away about. But the way that she, the way that Claire Denis makes films, you know, she she kind of just kind of thrusts through environments and experiences. And mm-hmm. scenes can be long or short. It doesn't really matter. She's giving you just enough information to kind of get your bearings and then on to the next thing. And I've always felt that way about her films but this one especially this one moved so fast to me that i when the closing credits started coming up i could not believe it was over i thought it had been on for maybe 50 minutes because i don't look at my watch during a film and i thought well this this movie has been on for even an hour i mean it was that exhilarating and strange and a little off-putting and julia binoche is always on screen which is a great thing um but i'm still milling through it like I, I don't quite know what to think of it but I know that I loved watching it yeah it's fascinating and I had an argument with somebody afterwards she was saying well she's just the victim of you know, these men are all, all just betraying her and doing this but I think she's she's doing it to herself I mean she's the author of her own fate oh, in this and she, she's sort of quasi hysterical the whole time she has this kind of desperation I mean it's a fascinating character I don't know what it means either I have to see it again mm-hmm. but it is like the different states and it's sort of a, there's a lot of se- a lot of sex scenes and they're all either vaguely unsatisfying for one reason or another but I don't quite know what to make of it either but I, I think another viewing is, is on order oh, yeah. yeah always a good yeah. sign Thank you both. This was fantastic. Thank Thank you. you. It was great fun. 
You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.